morning. Let's go to our God again in prayer. Father in heaven, it is good to pray again as a church because we know that all good things come from you. And we also know that you hear our prayers and you answer us for your own glory and also because you love us in your son. Lord, my prayer for this sermon and this series is that it would equip your people to be ready at any moment to give a defense the reason for the hope that is in them. May we grow in this so that we can winsomely give defense for what we believe. But I pray also it would stabilize your church that what we believe is reasonable and true and it is something we can build our lives upon. And I pray for any of those who are unpersuaded that it would, your word would persuade them. Oh, Father, thanks for the power of your word and the power of truth. Help me rightly handle and speak it today. I ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, to summarize again the direction I'm hoping to go in this series, as Pastor Brandon preaches through 1 Thessalonians, you wanted to take that book as a whole. And I think, and what I wanted to do, and we thought would be wise, is along as Brandon is preaching, once in a while I will preach a sermon in the subject of apologetics, on the topic of apologetics. Um, I'll fill out more what that word means a bit later, but very simply, apologetics is uh, answering those questions or the discipline that deals with the questions surrounding our faith, right? So the questions such as, why do we believe God exists? Why do we believe in God? Why do we believe the Bible is the word of God? Why do we believe it should be completely trusted? Why do we believe in the resurrection? Or maybe even some more uh, practical questions. I guess those are practical, but some others. Uh, why, am I, why are we Protestants? Or why, why is it important that there's two genders and why do we stand on that? So these are apologetic questions, right? And so I'm hoping to deal with some or even more of these as we go forward, and my prayer is that it will equip you and uh, stabilize you as uh, you walk out the Christian life. Now, uh, just to uh, get all our brains going, I would like to just ask the question, because this is the question I primarily want to deal with today. Uh, why do you believe in God? Why do you believe in God? Consider how maybe you'd respond. Now, maybe you'd answer, well, I I just do. He has saved me and I know he is there. All right. Or maybe you'd go a little deeper. Well, his Bible tells me so. Um, Somewhat like the hymn, Jesus loves me, this I know, right? For the Bible tells me so. Similarly, I know God exists. Why? For the Bible tells me so. Now, before I say anything else, I want to go on record saying, if that's why you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I think your faith is beautiful. And I believe uh, when I get to heaven and will be gathered around the throne of God, there will be many believers and saints there worshiping God who believed in him because he said so in his word. I am fully persuaded of that. And I also believe, second, that that is one mighty foundation to build your life upon. If your worldview, your hopes, and your beliefs are based on the holy word of God, you are building your life, your hope, and your worldview on a foundation that will not pass away, either in this life or the life to come. That is a very solid rock. However, we do live in this world. And you probably know as well as I do that let's say someone would meet you on the streets and would ask you that question and that would be your answer. They wouldn't be as impressed as Daniel just was. Okay? And I think it's a good answer, but they won't find it all that persuasive. And so really, that's why this sermon And uh, that's why this series, I want to think through these big questions of our faith, particularly in regards how to answer those who do not agree with us. 
And as you heard in my prayer, my hope for this is that one, it would equip you, brothers and sisters, to give answers that are persuasive and true to those who ask such questions, but also that it would stabilize you in the things that you believe in. This is a rational faith, brothers and sisters, and the more I study it, the more I am persuaded of it. There is a reason it is still going strong after all these millenniums. And then also, as you heard in my prayer, that those who are not persuaded in any of these subjects would become so that they would see the goodness of the risen Savior. In a word, I want to equip you to answer the big questions that our culture has and to do it well, and henceforth faithfully apply and fulfill the command that we just heard read in 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16. So before I dive into that question, why we believe in God, uh, let's first look at 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16, because this is the big verse on apologetics. I think it gives many of the guidelines for it. So let's look at it together, 15 through 16. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be, may be ashamed. Okay, now first things first, for context, the context of First Peter as a whole and specifically in this passage is that the people, the Christians Peter is writing to are suffering a lot of persecution. Okay? They're being challenged for the very things that they are believed in. They are being dragged before the governing authorities to answer for their faith. So I think the point Peter is essentially making here is that live an upright life so that the governing authorities have nothing to accuse you of. Like, don't let them drag you, don't, don't let it be about like a speeding ticket or something like that, or because you stole something. May it be that the only thing they can accuse you of is that you believe in the risen Savior. What I mean there is verse 15, but, see this, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Or in the ESV, have Jesus as Lord in your hearts. In other words, let God reign as king in your hearts and in everything you do and say, let it flow from Christ's lordship. Everything that you do and you say, let it be under the lordship of Christ. And if you do, therefore, the only thing they'll be able to accuse you of is the things that you believe in. This is the logic. Again, if you're dragged before the governing authorities, make sure they have nothing to pin on you except that you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, walk with a holy life. Then he keeps going. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. This is where we get the word apologetics from. Okay? The Greek word underlying the word defense here is apologia. So in other words, be ready to give a apologia, an apologetic, track with me, to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you. Now this word apologia, that underlines this word defense in the English, can have two meanings. On the one hand, it can be used like a formal defense before uh, someone in a court, someone who's accusing you and you're giving your defense. You're giving your apologetic. Or it can mean more in general, just an argument that one is making on one's own behalf in the face of an understanding or criticism. So that's the way I generally understand this, that we're doing apologetics. Again, we're not apologizing for what we're believing in. We're not apologizing that we believe Jesus is risen from the dead or that the word is, that the Bible is the word of God or that God is king. We're not apologizing for those things, but we're giving an answer a defense to anyone who criticizes or misunderstood or has questions. We want to always be ready for this. Therefore, to put a phrase on it, apologetics is what we are doing when we are giving a reason for our hope. Okay? Apologetics is what we are doing when we are giving a reason for our hope. And brothers and sisters, I really want you to be able to give to those around you a reason for your hope. Now, something I do want to say even as we look at this verse is I used to have this view that apologists, because I used to watch, like I, like I love watching debates on YouTube of scholars and universities 
uh, discussing these just big questions. And I used to think that what an apologist was is someone who was able to go into like the university of say Harvard and debate the most brilliant scholars on all the details of the Christian faith. Now I'd say, I do think that is an apologist, but that's not all that an apologist is. Meaning I used to think it's only those type of people who are the philosophers and the scholars. Now I really thank God for what these brothers and sisters are doing, that we have men and women who can stand up against the most brilliant minds of our age. But friends, we're all called to obey this passage. Everyone is an apologist. R.C. Sproul wrote a book on that, and I agree with him. Everyone is an apologist. And I want every one of you, no doubt in varying degrees, to have the ability to sweetly and persuasively give a reason for the hope that is in you. Uh, Charles Colson said it this way, If our culture is to be transformed, it will happen from the bottom up, from ordinary believers practicing apologetics over the backyard fence or around the barbecue grill. I agree. So whether someone you meet in the street or your family members, or your co-workers, being able to simply respond to them, being ready to give an answer. Or I think even in discipleship, the main application is probably towards unbelievers. But I think in discipleship, if you've ever discipled someone, they have a lot of questions. And I want you equipped to be able to respond to the questions that they have. Even beyond this, but very connected, I think parents towards children. As you know, children have many questions, especially as they grow up. I'm guessing into the teenage years. I did, I very much did. And I'm glad my parents were there to answer my questions as they best could best. In fact, I'm hoping one day I'm changing Timothy's diaper and he looks up at me and he's like, Daddy, why do you believe in God? <laughs> okay, that's coming in the future. He's 22 days old. But I really do... <laughs> I think about these things, okay? I do. <laughs> it's good to be prepared, yeah. Um, but yeah, I really do hope he asks those questions someday, and I hope we can talk about those things. I would love to talk about those things with him. I think our children are always asking these questions. Um, there's a New York Times article. I actually want to interact more directly with it later. But essentially, there was this Jewish father and his son, uh, called Rex, was basically struggling with the faith. And this is more of an example of what not to do, but, but stay with me. Um, so he was walking home with his son Rex from the bar mitzvah, like the training for the, the young Jewish boys. And Rex was like struggling with the faith. And so he sa- stated this, which in a sense was a question. He said, if God was real, he wouldn't let all those people die. Now essentially, right, this boy is asking the age-old question, why does God allow suffering? So here he is. Wow, I got to respond to my boy. He's having a crisis of faith. Now, this is the dad's response. I'll summarize it for you so you don't have to read it. Um, He's like, essentially, you're right, son. God is fiction. But when you pretend he is real, he becomes real to you. It's, It's a view called fictionism. And the title of the article is How to Pray to a God You Don't Believe In. Really strange. Okay, now, parents, don't give that answer to your children. Okay, please don't give that answer to your children. I want you to have, there's a lot better answer than that. Let me, let me just say that. And I'll, I'll interact more directly with that question in the future, uh, down the, in a little bit here. But now, as I said, um, apologetics is not just for believers, but for you as well. Um, uh, when you're reading the word of God, I want, you, I want you to be able to read that word and go, yeah, this is the word of God. If there's any lingering doubts, may God settle that in your mind so that it may bear much fruit as you read on. And also when you pray, like, I want you to be able to pray knowing that the God you pray to is real, right? That's not prayer, what this guy's talking about. That's not prayer. And so I want you to be able to pray to a God that you absolutely believe in. Um, yeah, so just a couple more big notes before I get into the specific question. Notice, notice the conclusion of verse 15. So always be ready to give a defense, an apologetic To everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is within you with meekness and with fear, or in other translations, with gentleness and with respect. Okay, both right, meekness and fear, gentleness and respect. And and so I think what is being said here, our goal is not to just destroy the person we are talking to, right? We're not just trying to make them look stupid or feel like idiots. 
Um, there's this trend that I, I really hate in the, in the TikTok age, going around TikTok and YouTube, in which people will quickly run up to people on the streets with a microphone, and they'll have this like really leading question, like a trapping question, which is sort of impossible to a- answer, whether religious or political, they'll do this. And then they'll stick it in their, in their face and record it, and in the moment, they just answer really foolishly because they don't really know how to answer on the spot. And then it's like a comp- compilation of all these dumb responses, and they're like, hey, look how stupid these people are that believe this stuff. And I really, I can't stand that kind of stuff. Um, It isn't our goal. It isn't our goal to make people look or feel stupid. Our goal is that they would see and worship Christ. Okay? Our goal is that they would see and worship Christ. This is very similar to evangelism. Now, apologetics isn't evangelism. It's not the exact same thing, but it has a lot of overlap because it has the same goal, right? The goal of apologetics and evangelism is we want people to see and worship Christ. That's the end goal, right? That's why we do this. That's what we're longing for. So when people ask questions or when we're presenting our case, let us do it with meekness and fear, with gentleness and respect. Now, again, before diving into the question, I have um, one more categorical thought that I think will be helpful for you, and it's been helpful for me. Uh, when we look at the scriptures, I think there's three main ways that apologetics can be used. Stay with me. So there's three main ways that apologetics is used, I think, in the scriptures and therefore can be used on the streets. Uh, on the one hand, so the first main way it can be used is apologetics as proof. Now to give credit where credit is due, this category came from a man named John Frame. He's been really helpful for me in this. But again, so apologetics as proof. Now, what this means, this would be like 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, where Paul says, we believe in the resurrection. Why? Because there are eyewitnesses. That'd be an example, right? He's always giving proof of the resurrection, positively making the case for why the resurrection is true, okay? So that's apologetics as proof. Next, you can have apologetics as defense. This is probably the main way we think about it, but this is like giving answer to objections. Paul's letter is chock full of these. Right? Someone will ask him a question and, and he'll respond. Jesus also is often doing this uh, when he interacts with the Pharisees. He's giving a defense. This is something we should do as well. And then finally, I think apologetics can be used as offense. Okay, It can be used as offense. Um, so if it's you're responding to the questions in defense, you want them to respond to it in offense. And uh, 2 Corinthians 10.5 we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to Christ, to obey Christ. So therefore, when we're using apologetics as offense, our goal is to destroy the arguments and lofty opinions, to showcase why the worldview is wrong, right? Why is the worldview that they hold to is fundamentally fallacious? So Psalm 14.1 could be an example of this. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt they have done abominable works. There is none who does good, right? So the psalmist is making the offensive case. Apologetics on the offense. Now, I'm going to use, you're going to see me using those categories a lot uh, as I work through these series. Um, and in fact, that's kind of what I want to do as I work through some of these questions. But again, just so you know, apologetics as proof, apologetics as defense, and apologetics as offense, Now, without further ado, that question, why do you believe in God? And I probably should say up front, I'm actually planning to break this into two sermons. So uh, I'm gonna, with concluding time here, I'll work with, interact with some of it, but then I'll continue my reasoning into next time I preach. But if someone would ask me why you believe in God, this is what I have summarized, I would say. I believe in God because he has revealed himself in his word And the universe that we live in only makes sense morally, logically, and scientifically if the God of the Bible exists. Okay, say it again. I believe in God because he's revealed himself in his word and the universe that we live in only makes sense morally, logically, and scientifically if the God of the Bible exists. Now that first part, his word, I'm planning on, that'll be a future series why I think the word can be a sound proof for the existence of God and why we trust it, but that's coming later. Um, But I want to zoom in on that reasoning right there where I said the universe only makes sense 
morally, logically, and scientifically if the God of the Bible exists. And I have a lot of subcategories within that. The way I'm going to break it out over this sermon, the next one is this sermon, I want to interact with that moral question. I want to show you uh, arguing morally uh, from a proof perspective, from a defensive perspective, and then offensively, how we can use the issue of morality. And then next time I preach, I'm going to deal with logic and science, so rationality, but then the world of, the world of creation and science. So yeah, so first off, morality. Uh, the world only makes sense morally if the God of the Bible exists. So therefore, part one, morality as proof. Now, I really like starting with the issue of morality when I'm interacting with people on the existence of God. Um, And when I say morality, if you're not familiar with that word, it just simply means that which is right and wrong, right? It's that which tells us rape is wrong, murder is wrong, injustice is wrong, racism is wrong, right? That's morality, what is right, what is wrong, okay? And I think this is a really helpful starting place because practically everyone agrees with this. Everyone agrees that there is morality. There may be a very small, small, small minority that would be what would be called nihilist, meaning there's no purpose, there's no meaning, there's no morals. But the vast, vast, vast majority of people you interact with, and I think rightly so, would agree that there is a right and that there is a wrong. There is an obvious standard for what is right and wrong. We may disagree on the details, but we agree that it is there. And if someone tells you that they don't think there is such a thing as right and wrong, take their phone or something. Steal something from them. Okay, don't, because that's wrong. But take something from them, and you'll find out really quickly that they do believe there is morality. Again, practically everyone agrees that there is an absolute moral and truth and law that all people should function under that we are obligated to follow. And so I think the challenge comes in, where does the obligation come from? Why are we obligated to follow it? Again, if all we are is atoms bumping into atoms or material, right? Or stardust bumping into stardust, who cares? Why does it matter? There's an, I thought of the analogy. So let's say, uh, an old lady was crossing a railroad track and fell onto the railroad track, right? And there's a train coming, okay? And so the train is charging along and you're like, you might get hit if you go out there, but you might not. Now, if it's just purely instinct or survival of the fittest, you wouldn't jump out there to save the person because it's not smart for you to jump out there. But there's something within you that is going, I should do it. What's, there's an ought. And if you walked away from it, tell me, let me tell you, it would bug you for the rest of your life. What's that ought? There's a law within the heart that tells us, no, you need to do something there. And we're not surprised by this, right? Because Romans tells us this, Romans 2, 14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. See that? While their conscience also bears witness. So I think the reason you have these universal laws that everyone must submit to and agrees upon, and really you look at any society and there's a general standard that people agree upon, a general one at least, it's because God has written his law on their hearts. So again, here's, here's the argument making it tighter. A supreme moral law demands a supreme moral lawgiver. A supreme moral law demands a supreme moral lawgiver. If there is an absolute right and wrong, there must be an absolute personal being who has spoken and upholds it. If there's an absolute right and wrong, there must be a personal absolute being who has spoken and upholds it. There must be an absolute personal being outside of us that gives and upholds the standard that we must submit to. And this being, I think, is necessarily the God of the Bible. Again, if you have any follow-up questions that I'm not covering, I'm kind of covering a lot of ground here quickly, you please find me afterwards. I would love to connect more on it. And so here is what the scripture teaches on our God, and this is why we know the standard also in part is there. First Chronicles 16.34, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. 
There has to be a good, absolute lawgiver. Psalm 25, 8, good and upright is the Lord. Jesus taught the same thing in Mark 10, 18. No one is good but one, and that is God. God is good. Also, God is just. Psalm 89, verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. For there to be a standard, there must be one on his throne who has graven the law that governs the world, and he will grant justice. Isaiah 61, 8, for the Lord, for I, the Lord, love justice, and I hate robbery and wrong, and I will faithfully give their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. My contention is that only such a God can provide the foundation for absolute moral standards we all know exist. If you ever read Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, probably the most famous atheist to ever be uh, converted, and uh, yeah, the Oxford professor of English, uh, his Mere Christianity book, he starts with this issue as well, morality. This is what persuaded him as he thought deeper and deeper on this. So again, there's many contours to it. Maybe you'd still have follow-up questions, but I think the Lord God gives answers. And so, maybe just uh, slow down for a moment. I just want to, I am so thankful to God that he is, that he is good and he is just and he has given us a standard to live by. He has revealed himself in his word, that which is right and wrong. I don't want to live in a world where there is no right and wrong. We can look all around us at a world that has no idea what is right and wrong, where there is no standard, and this is where the chaos is coming from. A world without right and wrong is chaos and cannot function. No one does, no one can. And I am also really glad that evil men such as Hitler will receive their due. There is no just God who will hold all people accountable for following his law, the law. Then Hitler's fine, he'll get away with it. Why does it matter? Why does it matter what he did? But there is, he does exist and he has given us his law to guide us in the way we should go and I say praise be to him. Praise be to him. And so that's I think how you can use morality as proof. Of course, there's, you could build on that substantially more but that's just a foundational example. Hopefully you find that helpful. But then as offense, okay, so as offense, so you've offered the proof now, how to go on the offense, interact with the worldview of the person that you're dealing with. Now, remember, again, offense is showcasing why their worldview doesn't work. Now, a phrase that I really like, um, the brothers that we listen to a lot, uh, use this a lot, a guy called Jeff Durbin, he goes to out in front of like Planned Parenthoods and debates with individuals and has quite a few debates actually with atheists and Muslims and others. Uh, the question that they always like to ask is, by what standard? Okay. By what standard? Because almost any person they're talking to is saying, this is right, this is wrong, this is right, you have to do it this way, right? But by what standard? It's actually fascinating in in, in the abortion debate, the pro-choice argument is essentially, they're trying to make a moral argument. The moral claim is that choice is an absolute right and to violate that right of choice is morally wrong. It's a moral claim. The follow-up, well, by what standard? By what standard? Of course, we believe, no, the right to life is a right that we function by. So again, remember that question, by what standard? And so I think a question to ask, ask anyone who doesn't believe in the God of the Bible is, why do you, where do his morals come from? By what standard? How do you determine anything? I watched a really long debate on the existence of God, and, and this was one of the central subjects. I remember the, the Christian side asked the atheist side, um, why is it wrong for us to eat babies? Which, which is a very legitimate question. I think every worldview needs to be able to answer that kind of stuff, right? Why is genocide wrong? But they asked specifically, why is it wrong for us to eat babies? Now, here's the response. Okay, so these are these scholarly atheists. Well, we have evolved morals to protect the species, and if we ate babies, we would cease to exist. This does not logically work because this is just begging the question. What is, you could just ask the follow up question what is wrong with the species ceasing to exist in your worldview? 
See that? By what standard? Like, who cares if the species stops existing? You still have not given a defense for why we ought not to eat babies. And if your answer is, oh, because we would cease to exist, who cares? Again, by what standard? Again, you could go on. Furthermore, if the answer is just, well, survival of the fittest, and so we've evolved morality so that we can survive, the Nazis believed that it was good for their population to eradicate the Jews, the Chinese, the Uyghurs. Many in our society believe that about the senior population. Okay, This is is an argument that's happening in our public public spheres. Right? We can kill off the seniors, then we can stop having to fund their living. Why are they wrong? If it's just about the survival of the species, why are they wrong? Now again, if just eating a baby or rape is just atoms bumping into atoms or stardust into stardust, who are we to say that it is ultimately wrong? And I think there's no answer. And that's what I got from the debates. Like, they don't know. But here's the thing. The simple, true, biblical answer is because they are made in the holy image of God, these people. And, are theref- and therefore, their lives are worthy of our deepest respect. God has made them and are worthy of our respect. Again, the question, right, when you go on the offensive, by what standard Again, ours is the living God. And I think it's the only one who can answer that question. Next, um, the answer or morality in as defense. Um, now here I, I want to answer and model for, uh, for how to use apologetics as a defense on a moral question. And uh, this question, is, as you actually heard me raise it earlier from the New York Times article, is by far the number one issue that I have had people raise in my own experience. So if you've ever done any evangelism or apologetics, I'm guessing you, you might experience something similar. The problem of suffering, the problem of suffering and evil, okay? So uh, summarize like this, why if God is good, does he allow suffering? Okay, so now answering this is defensive apologetics. So why, if God is good, does he allow suffering? I'll just read this New York Times article, and then I'll interact with it. So this is what, so again, he's walking home with his boy Rex, and this is what he says. If God was real, he wouldn't let all those people die. He was talking about the pandemic, but he could have been talking about the killings of civilians in the Kiev suburb of Bucha, or any number of other atrocities he had been exposed to in his short life. He said, I asked, why do you say that? He responded. So the father said, why do you say that? Rex responded. Well, God is supposed to care about us, Rex said. That doesn't seem like something you let happen if you cared and you could stop it. His conclusion, therefore God doesn't exist. So fictionalism is his response, which is atrocious. Now this uh, is, has been summarized as the problem of evil, and I say if it's a problem at all. Okay, but to summarize the argument again, if God is omnipotent, that is all-powerful, and therefore able to stop all suffering and evil, and he is also good, then how can he allow pointless evil and suffering? Are, are you tracking the reasoning of that? This is by far the number one uh, challenge that I hear when I'm interacting with people. I still remember I uh, had a good friend from Japan and for years we talked about the things of God and the things of faith. And I remember on the day I was saying goodbye, I stood for three hours and talked with him outside uh, at St. Cloud State Campus and uh, we talked and we talked and he said, this is still my issue. I look around the world at all the suffering and the evil. How can God exist and not do something about it? I hope he comes to Christ, but that was his issue, he said. Now, I like to answer this, and I think of the answer to this on two fronts, okay? I think of the answer, actually, I kind of break up the way I generally respond to this. So one, I think there's an intellectual answer to this, which is very persuasive, 
But then it's primarily a heart question that people are asking there. And I think we also need to think about how to answer that at a heart level. Because most people, I think, don't need to be persuaded intellectually. Some do, but not all. So again, I think of it intellectually and at a heart level. And I can't tell you how many times like, I've launched into... <laughs> I've launched into some like answer from rationality on this, and they're like, huh? and then, but then I shift, but then I shift to the heart part, and it's like, I'm following, right? And I, I think, and then that makes sense because, yeah, the scriptures say they do know, and it is a heart issue that's blocking the way, essentially, right? So that makes sense. Now, but but to start with the intellectual one, um, just dry. <laughs> We're gonna be a little dry here. So first off, I just think the reasoning is fallacious. Okay, the reasoning is fundamentally fallacious, which is why this argument hasn't really held over thousands of years of it being attempted. It just—it's not been found that persuasive by philosophers. Here's why: to say that God can exist because He lets people die, you'd also have to prove the premise that God couldn't have sufficient moral reason for why he does what he does. Okay, again, to say that God can't exist because he lets people die, you would also then have to prove that God could not have sufficient moral reason for why he lets people die, for why they're suffering. That problem is why this answer has not, or why that problem of evil has not sank. Christianity or philosophy or thought. Tim Keller put it this way, just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. You might feel that, but that's not a logical argument. A philosopher called Alvin Platinga used this analogy. He says, let's say, for example, you looked into a pup tent, so a place where you keep your dogs, and uh, you don't see a St. Bernard you would be logical to assume that there is no St. Bernard, right? But then he said, but here's the issue. There's also this little tiny insect called the noceums, right? The noceums. By definition, you can't see them, okay? But if you looked into that very same tent and you didn't see one of those, you wouldn't be logical in concluding that there's none of them in there. Right? It, doesn't, it doesn't logically follow. It's a, fallacious, it's a fallacious argument. So therefore, I don't think it works as an argument against Christianity at a rational level. And then on the flip side, the very reality of suffering and evil is in itself, as I just showed, I think an argument for God. For if there would be no God, then there would be no standard by which to measure. And depending who I'm talking with, I would point this out. The very fact that you're bringing it up, I think is actually an argument for God. Right? So I say that carefully, but the very fact that you're bringing up and wrestling with these moral things, I get that. That's human. That's real. But I think it's actually a sign of God and God in, who has written his law in your heart. Again, I said this is what persuaded C.S. Lewis. This is what he said. My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has seen some idea of a straight line. Right? What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? God is a standard of justice. How do you question him? Now, before I turn to, to the more of the heart arguments, um, you maybe noticed that my first response wasn't just to dive into uh, the answer of free will. I would say the, to respond, uh, the free will argument is probably by far the most popular argument used in popular uh, apologetics. And, uh, well, essentially it goes like this, then I'll say my thoughts on it. Uh, God doesn't want to, so there's evil in the world because God doesn't want to violate free will. Therefore, he allows people to their own free choices even if they're evil. So like, he so wants to protect their free will that he just allows them to it. Now, which is why there's evil. Now, I think this argument has some utility in that it, um, it showcases that God isn't responsible for evil and sin. So I think that's, that's the benefit of it. But as a holistic argument, I, I just never found it all that persuasive. 
Um, one, that's really not the answer scripture, I think, itself gives when there's like, there's places in the scripture where they're asking, uh, like Job, for example, the Romans, like, why is there suffering? Why is this? And God doesn't give the answer of free will, right? So again, I think it has some utility, but not as a holistic argument for the problem of evil. Also, you'd have to wrestle with the questions of, okay, what about the tsunami crashing over? What does that have to do with free will? Or what about the child and the abuse situation? What about their free will? And so it, there's challenges to it, right? I just, I think there's a strong, uh, yeah, I, I think more inter- do with the argument that I tried to give you before. And if you're going to use this mainly to make the point, God is not responsible. But now to the heart question. If I was responding to this at more of a heart level, I would say it's something like this. Well, here's the thing. I don't know fully why God has allowed evil and suffering. But I do know that God is good and that God is just and that he has reasons for all of this. And what's interesting is this is the answer that I think the scriptures give. When you consider the story of Job, right, you have this unbearable suffering, this unbearable pain that he goes through. He loses his family. He loses his children. He loses all his finances. He loses everything that he has. You, and throughout the book of Job, he's complaining and he's giving sorrow throughout the whole book. And that, now listen to these words he concludes with. Job, oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on my crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. This is strong. I'm struggling with pain. I'm struggling with suffering. Let the Almighty answer me. Right? This is God's response in Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? (laughs) Dress for actions like a man, I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what, what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstones when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And it goes on for like four chapters. And then Job is like, yeah, I'm done, okay? Yeah, <laughs> essentially. God is wise. He has his reasons in the same way, right? Romans 9, how can the clay say to the potter, why did you make me this way? God's answer is, an, oh, because you have free will. It's just, I did it. You see, God has reasons and we may not see them. I know our God has reasons. He tells us that, but we may not see them. I think of the story of Joseph, right? So all these horrible things happened to Joseph. Terrible things. He got sold into slavery. He was in prison for a decade about. But then hear what Joseph, this is Joseph's concluding thoughts with the story. But as for me, what you meant for evil, finish it for me. God did it for good. Now, I bet Joseph didn't feel that at the time when he was being sold into slavery when he was in the jail. Right, But what you meant for evil, God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. God is writing a bigger story and we can't see it. And I think if we would look back over our lives, I think we would see the many times where the unbearable moments did turn into something good. Not always, but how the unbearable moments were part of something good, something bigger. And I've noticed this on reflection, even from the other angle, so on the sweetest things of life, that if I think of the sweetest things in life, somewhere back before them, a necessary step was something really hard. I couldn't see it at the time, but he's writing a grand story. I mean, one example that I... Think of from the mission field, like because of the rise of ISIS. I mean, if you've read what they did across the Middle East, it's unbelievable. The atrocities. But now the Muslim world is more open to the gospel than they've ever been. God is able to work all things. And this, I think this is something that we, it's just understood. I mean, there's a, 
There's an old Chinese proverb even that tells this story, and I actually, I liked it, so I'll share it and explain why I think it, it's right. So a farmer, the story goes, a farmer and his son had a beloved horse who helped the family earn a living. One day the horse ran away, and the neighbors explained, your horse ran away, what terrible luck. The farmer replied, maybe so, maybe not. A few days later, the horse returned home, leading a few wild horses back to the farm as well. The neighbors shouted out, your horse has returned and brought several horses home with him. What great luck! The farmer replied, maybe so, maybe not. <laughs> Later that week, the farmer's son was trying to break one of the horses, and she threw him to the ground, breaking his leg. The neighbors cried out, your son broke his leg, what terrible luck! The farmer replied, maybe so, maybe not. Then a few weeks later, soldiers from the National Army marched through town recruiting all boys for the army, but they did not take the farmer's son because he had a broken leg. You know what they all cried out. Your boy is spared with tremendous luck. To which the farmer replied, maybe so, maybe not, we'll see. I think that's right. Of course, they probably didn't believe in God then, but we know that God is writing a story and, uh, and we can't see it. And we can't see it. And I'm really not afraid to share that in apologetics. I don't think we should be. Because again, because that's the answer I think God himself gives. Now that said, it's, it's still, especially when people are bringing up pain, it's a very hard question to answer. Especially hard emotionally. So, for example, let's say, Someone just lost their little daughter to cancer, right? Or something like that. And they're struggling with that. And they would maybe ask, okay, but why did God allow my little daughter to die? Why did he allow that? Now at this point, this is my summary how I would respond. I guess I don't fully know. The Bible doesn't totally detail to us why specific events happen. But what I know to be true is that God is good, that he is just, he has a plan, and he has reasons for everything he does. I think it's okay to answer that way. Maybe you've thought different about it and think you, like, this is the answer I'd give, but that's how I think about it. Again, I don't fully know. The Bible doesn't fully detail to us why specific events happen. But what I know to be true is that God is good, he is just, and he has reasons for everything he does. They may then ask, okay, so what, what, are, what are some of those reasons? I mean, okay, well, we see that God created the world for his glory. Therefore, I think one of these reasons he would allow suffering and pain in the world is because in such a world he is able to more fully make his attributes known. Right? He's more fully able to make his attributes known, such as redemption, such as love, such as forgiveness and undeserved mercy. In a world with suffering and evil, God can make his glory known. That's the reason. There's others. He uses suffering to bring people to himself. He uses suffer to sanctify his people. He uses pain and suffering to, like, to wake people up. Kind of, I guess that's point two, but to, in prison, you know, to wake people up that they would see him and come to the fountain. So he does have reasons. I'm not always sure why in every instance, but we know that he is good and that he has a plan. Now, finally, and, and I was excited to get to this part, if you ever get that question from someone of evil and suffering, whether your children or whether someone in the streets, don't miss the opportunity to bring them to the cross of Christ. Okay, don't miss the opportunity to bring them to the cross of Christ. It is one of the greatest joys of any evangelist or apologist to explain to people that we serve a God who didn't stay distinct from all this pain and suffering that you're wrestling with right now, but came down into the midst of it. In the person of Jesus Christ. He didn't remain distant from the suffering and the pain of the world, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that ever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. I think the, the, the question is best answered at the cross. Amen. He came right into the heart of it. He gave himself up to the pain and the suffering of crucifixion so that broken, hurting humanity could have life. And then he rose from the grave and he conquered that death. It is no more. In him, 
It is no more. And if we believe in this, we'll be saved. So if that's a question that was hanging you up, friends, God didn't stay distant from the suffering of the world, but he came in Jesus Christ that you may have life. <laughs> I still remember talking with someone, Sam and I were reminiscing on this, talking with someone at the Little Falls Dam, we were witnessing, and this question came up. This is a very familiar question. The question of suffering came up. And I tried to get my answer, and I was like, oh, okay, sure, on the intellectual part. Then I remember giving this answer here about the cross. And I was taken aback because like sometimes, you know when you're in the moment, like you forget the beauty of a truth and you're kind of just sharing it. And I was sharing like, man, what love that God came down. And the guy, remember this, as far best as I can remember, he looked at us and he literally started crying. He's like, that's a lot of love. And you could tell he had been through some stuff. And he was thinking of all that. And he's like, he came down into this. And I remember going like, you're right. That is a lot of love. <laughs> it, like, it, it, he helped me touch down for me. Like, that is a lot of love. And uh, that's really persuasive to people. And for good reason. God didn't stay distinct, distant. He came down to the cross that we may have life. Thank God. Yeah, I'm going to conclude with that and just a couple of final thoughts. Again, inter- primarily, I think I would say interact with the heart. Maybe you were feeling a little overwhelmed as I was working through some of the details of this reasoning. But I would say, I, I think at least 95% of the time, people don't really need one of those like intellectual arguments. They, they need you to interact with their heart. So the apologetic of the heart, right? The cross of Christ, the suffering there. Um, or even, yeah, just asking a question, well, why is there morality? Interacting on those simple questions um, I think will engage the heart. Yeah, I think they're the most persuasive to people. I think it's mainly their hard, even hurting heart that are standing in the way. So share the good news of the Savior with them. And brothers and sisters, be ready at any moment to give a reason for the hope that is within you. Yeah. Well, let's spend some time in corporate prayer. The brothers will be running mics around. So anything that you have in your heart you want to pray about, Oops. And one more uh, word of direction. So if someone is praying and you want to pray, you can raise your hand even while they're praying and the other person will bring that mic to you. Does that make sense? That way we can keep it going. So whoever wants to pray first, you can just raise your hand and the usher will bring you a mic. Yeah, Father in heaven, thank you for the comfort and the foundation that your word is. It's good to, in a tossing and confused culture, to have the solid ground. And I pray that even our own experiences and our walks with you would inform our apologetics and would help us be more sweet, winsome, and even persuasive when we share. Oh God, would you win many people to yourself because your people are going out and giving a reason for the hope that is in them. Oh God, keep deeping us in this. We want to see many people seeing and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask this in his holy name, amen.